3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Um, you're, it is 7am on the 27th of June and... You're joined in the studio today with me, Carnegie, and Ivka. Good morning, Ivka. Good morning. How are you this morning? I am well. Yes, I'm much better than I was last week because COVID finally got me. I can't believe it. You escaped it for so long. I know. I really, it was, I think it was, it was time because it was quite humbling to realize that I'm not this superhuman that I thought I was and a reminder to everyone that COVID is definitely still out there and to mask where you can and get vaccinated but yes it was actually <laughs> it was kind of nice to have some time off it was <laughs> a small um silver lining yes and I I managed to catch up on some tv that um I've been meaning to watch and don't normally have the time for so two recommendations if I can Please. um bad sisters Written by Sharon Horgan, Irish dark comedy about sisters that really dislike their other sister's husband and, you know, some bad stuff in ta- uh, ensues. It's very funny, very dark, very Irish. Um, and the other one is Deadlock, which is uh, which is Australian and written by the Cates, Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney from The Catering Show and it is... Uh, a crime comedy filmed in Tasmania and it is also very good so yeah I don't normally get to watch much television but that was really fun um yes I can I've started deadlock so definitely agree with that one but the other one sounds really good too what's that one on it's on Apple TV. I got the free trial. I'm going to cancel it today. So there's a tip for you if you haven't uh, signed up to Apple TV before because that is the only thing I really wanted to watch on that platform and it yeah I raced through it yeah, trials are the way to go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just, I sign up to so many trials and then just... Keep creating cancel. new email addresses to create new trials. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been watching a show that's been out for a while, Yellow Jackets. I have heard of, have not watched. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's, unless it has like humour to cut through all of the horror, it's not really my vibe, but what's the what's the premise again? Um, it's a high school girls soccer team in America that is going to nationals in the 90s and the plane crashes and they get stranded um like really great cast uh story super gripping mm-hmm. but yeah not for the not for the faint of heart like me like <laughs> I have to watch a lot of it on mute because the sound <laughs> scares me more than yeah I would be looking away yeah. I get that yeah but really great if you can if you can stomach that. That sounds thing. like a watch with someone kind of show. Yeah, yeah exactly. One hundred percent. Or watch with your tiny baby and mute it. <laughs> <laughs> it You're like, I'm protecting the baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
All right. Should we talk about what's coming up on the show this morning? Yes. So we're starting off listening to a replay from um, the Climate Action Show where Vivian Langford speaks with Neve O'Connor from Blockade Australia about the reasons behind her suspension over Footscray Road that stopped traffic into the container terminal at Port Melbourne last week. Then at 7.30, we are listening to Fung's interview with Daisy, who is a NAM-based family violence lawyer and queer parent of a newborn uh, who recently had to navigate the medical maternity system. So this is yesterday's episode of Women on the Line, where Daisy talks to Fung about her observations on the lack of continuity of care for birthing people and the learning and unlearning required to avoid a traumatic birthing experience. At 7.45, we'll be joined in the studio by Madison Griffiths, actually a Tuesday Breakfast alumni. Madison's a writer, artist and producer based here in Melbourne and next week has a book coming out called Tissue. Tissue is a look at the topic of abortion in a meditative and personal uh, way that looks at the procedure that is common yet vilified. Super excited for that one. And then at 8 o'clock, we will be listening to a conversation I had with Associate Professor Dr. Yakut Fatma, who is a research pharmacist and sleep scientist at the UQ Porsche Centre for Indigenous Health. I spoke to Fatima just a few days ago about um, her research into sleep and one of the first sleep clinics for First Nations youth. Um, So that is a really great conversation as well. So looking forward to today's show. We'll be right back after this. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 03 9419 8377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. That each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au donate. forward 
3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. These are your news headlines for this morning, the 27th of June 2023. Major roadworks in Melbourne's west have caused mayhem for residents trying to commute to the city. Dinan Road, one of the main routes from the western suburbs into the city, will remain closed from now until the 31st of August, causing bottleneck traffic on Footscray Road, which has been closed for months and has just reopened. Trains will also not be available for the next two weeks, and again unavailable in August. Almost 32,400 passengers catch trains along the affected Sunbury, Williamstown and Werribee lines every weekday during school holidays, according to state government data. There are insufficient replacement bus options and a shortage of bus drivers as well. Um, Everybody who can is being urged to work from home. However, this is not possible for many, and residents of the West are quite frustrated with the lack of options, especially during school holidays when families are trying to commute to the city for more than just work. It is one of the worst flu seasons that Australia has ever seen, especially for children. Since 2023's influenza season started, children have made up almost 80% of those admitted to hospital. The concern is that few children have received their annual flu vaccine this year, which leaves them and the wider community at risk of flu and its complications. In 2020, at this stage of the season, nearly 40% of children aged six months to to under five years were vaccinated, compared with only 20% this year. In those five to under 15, 25% were vaccinated in 2020, compared with only 12% now. Parents are encouraged to get their children vaccinated, get the annual flu vaccine and prevent infections. Even if infected, vaccinated children are less likely to be hospitalised. Australia's international students have um, cried foul over demands to take a $400 English test multiple times. International students are spending hundreds of dollars on mandatory English test requirements that expire after two years, even if they have completed degrees in English and lived in Australia for years. To apply for an Australian visa, international students are required to pass one of five accepted English language tests, but even after they've passed and completed study in Australia, they have to retake these tests to enter some workplaces or undertake further study in Australia, such as masters or PhDs. These tests cost $400 each, especially the IELTS test, which is used by 11,000 organisations across the world. The Greens education spokesperson, Marion Faruqi, has said that forcing international students who already pay a fortune to study in Australia to repeat tests was yet another example of the way this country treats international students like cash cows. A Home Affairs Department spokesperson has said that the government remains committed to using this test to manage immigration risk and ensure visa holders are able to fully participate in Australian society. As someone who's had to do this test multiple times, it really makes no sense. (laughs) Um, In some good news, the last refugee on Nauru has been evacuated to Brisbane. However, the government is keeping the detention centre open at an annual cost of $350 million a year. Despite nationwide backlash, it remains committed to its policy of offshore processing. There are still 80 refugees and asylum seekers held in PNG, 
um, mostly in Port Moresby. At least 14 people have died in offshore detention centres since it was restarted in 2012, including being murdered by guards, through medical neglect and by suicide. There are still several hundred refugees in Australia previously subject to offshore processing who urgently need resettlement solutions. And finally, Environment Victoria are running a People Power workshop series, which will consist of four online workshop sessions where people from across the state will get together to learn how to organise the community for environmental justice and climate action. The workshops are running on Wednesday evening, starting on the 19th of July, and are free for everybody to attend. For more details or to register, please go to envict.org ppw23. All right, next up, we're going to play you a track that I can't stop listening to at the moment. This is Selfish Soul, uh, remixed by Odessa by Sudan Archives.
is Selfish Soul by Sedan Archives. In a coordinated action across four major cities in Australia, Blockade Australia targeted container terminals at the ports to highlight the system that supports the destruction of our environment. Vivian Langford from 3CR Climate Action Show talks with Neve O'Connor about the reasons behind her suspension over Footscray Road that stopped traffic into the container terminal at Port Melbourne last week. We're going to play you a small part of that conversation. Blockade Australia have stopped the traffic in four major cities this week. They've drawn attention to the coal trains at Newcastle Port. This exported coal is obviously fueling climate chaos. But in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, climbers have been suspended over the container ports. They are not all young. One woman was 62. And they are pointing our attention to the consumerism that is also creating ecological collapse. I have Neve here. She abseiled off a bridge in Melbourne, blocking six lanes of traffic leading to the port. So welcome to the community radio, Neve. And Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Well, tell us, why did you do it? Yeah, so the system that we call Australia um, is fueling the climate crisis and this system is, you know, extracting and exploiting on this continent. Um, and the Port of Melbourne is a major bottleneck of this system. It's um, part of the economy that fuels this crisis and that, you know, the system runs off profit and money. Um, and so by blocking, you know, the ro- six lanes road that goes in and out um, of Melbourne's container port, which is the largest container port in Australia, I effectively was stopping the system and halting the climate crisis for a second, like in that moment. And that's what we need to see on a mass scale if we're ever going to effectively create the change we need to see. Yeah. Well, I spent a long time yesterday watching the Blockade Australia people in all those cities on YouTube and really just long speeches. Well, very breathless one was (laughs) sitting way up above, very Mm. high up and, um, I think many people instinctively feel that our system is tearing our future apart and creating climate chaos and ecological collapse, but they can't think past the system. I mean, we had a shutdown in COVID during the pandemic. It was quite surprising to see all those aeroplanes, all those ships just stopped. But that's temporary. That's pandemic. We understand that. But this is a much bigger, longer lasting thing. What do you... Is it unthinkable to you that things, all this system could change? It's not unthinkable. That's why I do it because I know that, like, there is no other choice. We can't live under the system that is going to kill us all. Um, The only way is to change the system. And, like, I don't have all the answers of what that system is going to look like. I'm just a 20-year-old. But people have been doing research on this for ages there are th- ways we can come work together as a community to design the future that we need to see, um, one that doesn't exploit and extract and kill. Mm. But for you, reading some of those reports, I've also read loads of reports on various points, like little spanners in the works, little things, uh, circular economy, for example, This, this, these ideas. Um, but which ones attract you? Well, I don't know if I have like a particular, you know, vision what the future looks like because I've kind of always been you know at a point 
where I could like start thinking about what the future looked like. I kind of just thought of climate change and thought there is no future. I have to fight for my future or fight to like see anything in the future. Um, Mm. And so I haven't spent a huge amount of time visioning, but I guess like I don't have necessarily like a system thing. I just see a future that, you know, isn't there designed to extract and exploit and people are living, you know, together without oppression and in community. And I think that's like what I would love to see. Yeah. Something I thought was very interesting in one of the comments, um, person said, power resides not only in governments and institutions, and they're the usual targets for activists, aren't they? You pester politicians and you demand things from banks and institutions, but it says power resides in the movement of goods and resources via roads, ports and rails, and through disrupting these flows, the system is challenged. Do you think the system is showing signs of challenge or are they just going to arrest you and and ignore you well by blocking by blocking six lanes of traffic i was causing a disruption which was like therefore you know a stop in the system um like it like blocks the system up for a moment and there is no way they can ignore that if it continuing continues to happen which is what's been happening across the continent for this last week um you know power does lie in these economic bottlenecks um you know that's where we have the power to create the change which is why that's what why we've chosen to go after them and block them right does it depend for you on the media picking up this story no i think what makes these actions effective is the fact that they cause the disruption and halt the system and that's the important thing is that we're taking action that is not just about a media story, it's about creating the effective change ourselves. Yeah. Well, it's obviously very well organised to do that in four major cities simultaneously. Terrific. What what did it feel like planning that and then achieving it? Oh, it was pretty incredible to hang there, Um, you know, knowing that there was lots of hard work behind the scenes going on um, and knowing that we pulled it off and that, you know, I was there blocking six lanes of traffic um, and felt very empowered to know that I was creating um, change because the only way to do that is through powerful direct action. Yeah. Well, I, ho- I hope the message is not distorted in the transmission. You know how we've had such a lot of community discussion about Extinction Rebellion, you know, throwing paint at famous paintings or something. It's It's that distortion that people never say why did you do it what's your experience leading up to this that this was a justifiable thing um they they always leave it just vague so what Mm. you can overcome that well I think telling like a personal story the fact that like you know this climate the climate crisis has been something in my life since I was you know very little grew up within the news when I was turned 15 Um, I started school striking for climate because that was the way I thought that, you know, I was going to create the change and I saw nothing come of that when I asked of people. And so I think it's important to just like tell people that, you know, the the way we're taking action is the only way that's going to create effective change. Many of us have tried other ways and, you know, the climate crisis is the thing on our minds at the moment because it is the thing that was going to kill us all. Yeah. I'm 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 glad it's on your mind because for so many people they're really blocking their ears and not letting it 
get in. And I think that's right, that doing everything you can in the normal way, school striking, normal channels and all of that. So many people tell me they've done all of that. And so many people in the older age bracket tell me they really take inspiration from the young people. But I wonder if they'll support young people like you doing this much more daring, much more dramatic action and also targeting the whole system, the whole consumerist system, profit-making. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it will be interesting to see, but, you know, Blockade Australia is made up of young people and old people. Today we saw, you know, a 62-year-old woman jump up on a container train in Melbourne like Blockade Australia covers all demographics because the climate crisis is going to affect everyone. Yeah. Okay, so what what is your story in the the background of this? What is the main experience of climate change or reading about it that, you know, throbs away for you? Well, like, to be honest, when I started school striking and I was, like, in high school, I was a 15-year-old and, you know, someone said do you want to come and organize this school strike for the climate? Like, I think it's really important. And I said, yes. And I started reading the news and it absolutely terrified me to like realize that we're facing all these tipping points that were going to cause complete and utter climate collapse and like kill human and non-human life and ecosystems and like everything we know and love about this planet. And I think from that moment on, it has driven me forward um, and like continuing to make sure that, you know, we are going to beat the climate crisis and this take, taking that action yesterday by abseiling off that bridge was just a moment in knowing that the system is the cause of that climate, of the climate crisis and that that's the thing that we need to stop if we're ever going to stop climate change. Yeah, maybe spell it out a bit more. I think a lot of people are very familiar with the coal port type protests, you know, stopping the coal trains in Newcastle. That's been going on for a long, long time. I've been to trials of that over the last decade you know people mm. fought for that and you can see the direct connection to climate change there but what about these container ports they're just bringing white goods back and forth aren't they and um things wrapped in plastic so it's it's the how does that impact on climate change how do you connect those two to really persuade the public yeah so like container ports are economic bottlenecks of the system so they're like where major thoroughfares of goods and imports and exports of the system go through um and like, you know, the import export system is responsible for a huge amount of our emissions going into climate change, but they're also super powerful centers at play in the economy of the system and in the institutions that like run the system. And like those institutions and corporations and the government rely on these big like economic bottlenecks to make the system function. And without them, they like the system doesn't function. And so we're targeting them so that we can have a chance to wield that power um, to stop climate change. Yeah. I think it's also the growth that's always growing, isn't it? Like Melbourne Port yeah. edged to put, get ever bigger ships in there. Yes. And yeah. all around the world this is happening. Um, there's nobody saying there's a finite point here. It's infinite profit available and infinite extraction to get it. Yeah, infinite growth, infinite profit. Like it's something that we know is never going to work and is always going to fuel the climate crisis but something the system is never going to give up yeah well i appreciate your honesty saying you don't have all the answers because i don't either and and i interview lots and lots of people but it's like the blind men describing the camel you know each describes yeah. a corner their little niche of it um and i think 
there there has to be some spanner in the works, even just to stop. It's just like I'm putting a spanner in this machine, sabotaging this machine for the moment to give you time to think. Yeah. You know? I yes. thought COVID would give us time to think, but I don't think it was long enough. Not long enough. Clearly we need to continue uh, thinking and there are many more things, but I think we also need to continue acting. Um, I really encourage people to like, Think about the actions that Blockade Australia have taken this past week and the coordinated mobilisation that's happened across this continent yeah. um, and encourage, like, why people took that action and how you could take that action too to stop the climate crisis. Yeah. I don't know that you'll get many people joining you up on those uh, <laughs> abseiling the tripod things, but um, I think a lot of people will support you with money for your court case and for um, just moral support behind you um tell us about you were arrested i think did is that going to um how did that go yes yeah, so i was arrested yesterday post get post abseil and um i'm all done with court court i finished with court yesterday um got my outcome and got a one month good behavior bond um so i'm pretty much off um all in one day all in one day i spent nine hours in small cell rooms getting wandered around from room to room waiting to go see the magistrate um but yes made it through and have finalized my case and so yeah what did the magistrate say um the magistrate told me that you know the climate crisis is important but i should also think about my future and I didn't say anything in return, but I think if I could have, I would have said I don't have a future due to the climate crisis and it's not going to deter me from taking the effective action that needs to happen. Wow. Well, I interviewed a, a young teacher, like a trainee teacher up in Newcastle years ago, and she locked onto the coal port machinery. And as yeah. a result, she can't ever teach again. You know, she lost her ability to teach, you know, her her licence really. So it is, it is serious what you're doing for someone in their 20s to take on this. It, it creates a liability unless there's the sympathy there, which sounds like the magistrate really gets it. So mm. good. thanks very much, Neve. So for the listeners, this is Blockade Australia. We've been speaking to Neve. There are many other people doing simultaneously these actions. You can see them on YouTube. Is that the best way? Just type You in. can see them on Facebook, Instagram. Just search it up on the internet. Anywhere Blockade Australia should pop up. Is there any more action planned that you, you can tell us? Uh, I don't know any details, but it's a week-long mo- mobilisation and hopefully we'll see more things to come. Great. All right. Thanks very much, Neve. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. See you. So that was a conversation that... Vivian Langford from 3CR's Climate Action Show had with Neve O'Connor from Blockade Australia about the reasons behind her suspensions over Footscray Road that stopped traffic into the container terminal at Port Melbourne last week. You can catch CAS on 3CR Mondays from 5pm or at 3cr.org.au slash climate action. We'll be right back with our next interview after this. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving. 
um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative heteronormative family life but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity you know it's around the family life in the suburb as opposed to many you know single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. For this week's Women on the Line episode, Fung spoke with Daisy, a NAM-based family violence lawyer and queer parent of a newborn who has recently had to navigate the medical maternity system. Daisy talks to Fung about her observations on the lack of continuity of care for birthing people, the learning and unlearning that was required to avoid a traumatic birthing experience, and the similarity she noticed between the maternity system and her field of work. Here is an excerpt from that conversation. Daisy, thanks so much for joining us on Women on the Line. Could you please start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so my name's Daisy. I work in the family violence legal sector in Melbourne here, and I've recently had a baby. So I guess part of the reason that we're going to be having this chat today is just to talk about some of the things that I experienced and some of the observations I had um, throughout the birthing process and some of, I guess, the similarities I saw in relation to some of the work I do as well. Yeah, so let's start with your experience giving birth and, and navigating the healthcare system in that way. What were some of the things that really stood out for you? One of the really interesting things for me is that I, so um, I'm queer, my partner and I went through IVF to conceive. And so that process in and of itself is inherently medical. So you, you know, you're going in very regularly for checkups and you have to, you know, be ovulating on a certain day and then go through and go through a transfer. And so the, in the process of IVF is yeah, incredibly medical. And so what I suppose we started to do my partner and I when um, I was able to fall pregnant was think about ways in which we wanted the birth process and pregnancy process to be less medical if that makes sense so just you know and when I'm saying not less medical I mean less um, medical in the sense that of course we want to get checkups and, you know, have um, scans and all of those sorts of things and make sure that everything's going well. But I suppose have also the tune into my intuition and, you know, have have an experience of pregnancy and birth that women and birthing people have been experiencing, you know, since the dawn of time, as they say. And I really wanted to figure out a way to to do that in a way that was safe safe for me, safe for the baby, safe for my partner. And I suppose what happened along the way of that journey was a lot of, 
understanding that the system in how it is now and probably post-COVID as well, it's probably gotten a lot worse, has really made it quite difficult, I think, for women to have the experience that I sort of thought we were seeking. Yeah. So can you talk to that point a bit more? Was it how things were run or the conversations that were being had, whether to you and to your partner or just around you, that made it feel like it wasn't what you thought it would be? Yeah. So I think one of the first things I'll say, like, obviously I'm not, I don't work in the, in the field. So this is something I've observed as like someone going through the system, the medical system or the maternity system. And when I first sort of started looking into, into it all, one of the things that comes up really regularly is this idea of continuity of care. So seeing the same midwife or seeing the same doctor or seeing the same person throughout your pregnancy journey um, as being one of the ways in which the most optimal health outcomes for mother and baby or parents and parents as well can be achieved. And so in Melbourne, like right now, it's really, really, really difficult to get continuity of care. So unless you pay for it, essentially. And so it's a really interesting dichotomy, I think, because we do have this fantastic free healthcare system under Medicare that compared to the US and you'll hear lots of people saying, wow, like we're so lucky, like I went into the hospital and gave birth and didn't have to pay for anything. And like, that's absolutely true. But equally what's happening is that women going through the public system are not seeing the same person at all. Then I didn't see a midwife until I I saw, I think we saw a midwife under the public system once at the start and then once at the end. Whereas the, the research, international research will say that seeing a midwife and seeing the same midwife throughout leads to such far better birth outcomes. And so what what we would what would happen is you go in, you someone gets you, you know, you document, they look at you, okay, yep, here's these, all of these sorts of things. And you start churning through as if you're as if you're any other sort of I guess, government system that, you know, it it almost, and I think for me, which we'll probably get to a bit later in the interview, but it almost felt like any other thing. It felt like you were lining up to get your passport done or you were lining up to go to some other government body to do something. And that's when we started sort of thinking, we only want to have one, one child. And this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity where I've that we've gone through so much to get to this point, I kind of don't want to just be sitting here being treated like a cog in the machine. And I was, I was probably about halfway through the pregnancy when I, we started really looking into other options that were available to people that could potentially achieve that better outcome for us. But that comes at a cost, which shouldn't be the case. Yeah. It's interesting. You said just now, Daisy, that, it's something that internationally the research says is something that's really crucial for the health and well-being of the child and the parents, everyone involved in that process. And yet that's something that is perhaps seen as a luxury here um, for people who can afford to pay in order to receive that care. And I imagine as well being a queer parent who's wanting to go through IVF or or the process of of giving birth or if someone who doesn't speak English or it just creates more and more um, for those people absolutely and one of the so I think at um, one of the public hospitals here 
there there's a couple of programs that you you can get into and it feel it literally feels like you're like I was on the edge of my seat waiting for the call to see if we got into the elusive program which allows for continuity of care and in the end the reason that we weren't in that program was because I had asthma and anxiety and so talking to some of the um, doctors I was like oh who gets into this program because you know like a lot of people are going to have different sorts of like co you know coexisting health conditions and things like that and even the doctor was like oh like it's so hard to get into and you know talking to other people at our parents group it's like a this elusive cool thing that someone like may or may not get into and so yeah I just think also being a queer queer family and having those um, coexisting health conditions to me, that would make you probably more, shouldn't you be more likely then to get the continuity of care to lead to those better health outcomes? But it doesn't seem like it's the case. And I think one of the reasons for that is probably because of the level of being risk averse that, you know, we definitely were um, confronted with a lot. And that's fantastic. Like I'm absolutely so thankful for the availability of all of these options you know and all of those interventions and the interventions are things like having an induction or having you know a forceps birth or a cesarean and those things they're fantastic things that we have and once you sort of learn about them and when they're necessary anybody would be grateful that we have those those things available to us but the level to which they're being used is not necessarily correlating with the need. And that's that's something that I was coming across in my research a lot. And interestingly, I think because I'm a lawyer and I have the capacity to read research and to look into things and it became a really sort of clear choice for us that we needed to, to have our own continuity of care, which meant hiring a private midwife to see throughout the rest of the pregnancy process. And so many people can't afford that or so many people can't even get to the point of where I got in my research to even understand why that was the most important thing for us to do. And I think the other problem is as well is that having these conversations, it can, there's there's a sort of a polarity going on where there's a group of, you know, maybe like Instagram influencers who talk about not not having any contact with the medical system and having a free birth and those sorts of things. And that's kind of not what I'm talking about. Like having continuity of care could mean seeing the midwife and going into the hospital and going into the doctor's surgery often and having checks often. It's not about opting out of any any sort of modern things that we know about birth it's actually about having someone there with you who you trust who's listening to you who's who's seeing how you are this week who's monitoring this thing because that's what's leading to to people having a better birth and i think i should also say i probably should have um, mentioned this at the start but my birth or the birth of my of our daughter was easily one of the most incredible experiences of my entire life and it was shaped completely and utterly by us essentially dedicating it felt like we had dedicated almost like a full-time job you know over the last couple of months before I gave birth to my partner and I to ensuring that I didn't have a traumatic birth and so to me that's just completely and utterly unfair on on all women and birthing people 
to have the bare minimum of not having a traumatic birth, the level of work that, that went into it. So that was Fung speaking with Nam-based family violence lawyer Daisy um, about navigating the maternity and medical system as a queer parent of a newborn and the unlearning and learning that she had to do in order to avoid a traumatic birth. Uh, for the full episode, you can check out 3cr.org.au slash women on the line um, and tune into Women on the Line Mondays at 8.30 a.m. We're now going to go to a track. This is an old favorite. This is Mariella by Kate Nash. I'm heavy handed To say the least My mother thinks I'll be an awful clutcher Cause I spill things from sternum too quickly I'm far too loud It's like as soon as I've got an opinion It just has to come out I laugh at stupid things Just cause they tickle me So she never had to speak, never had to speak, never had to speak People used to say she's as quiet as a mouse, she just doesn't make a peep She marched to her wardrobe and she threw away the colour Because wearing black looks mysterious, but it didn't impress her mother She wanted to dress a baby in patterns and flowers, but Mariella just crossed her arms and so she cried for hours Mariella, Mariella, my pretty baby girl Unglue your lips from being together and, and wear some pink and pearls You can have your friends round and they can stay for tea Won't you just try to fit in, please do this for me Quite strange And the boys They're not really into girls 
That track was Mariella by Kate Nash. Madison Griffiths is a writer, artist and producer based here in Melbourne. She's the co-producer of Tender, an award-winning Broadway podcast that follows what happens in the aftermath of abusive relationships and has had essays published widely in the likes of The Guardian, SBS and Vice. And Madison is also a Tuesday Breakfast alumni. Uh, In Tissue, Madison's new book, out next week, July 5th, she looks at the topic of abortion in a meditative and personal way, looking at a procedure that is common yet vilified. Madison joins us in the studio this morning to talk about tissue. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so the listeners heard my spiel, but I'd love with you starting of introducing yourself a little bit. Yeah, um, so my name is Madison. Um, I... I'm a writer, artist and producer and yeah, I used to be here at Tuesday Breakfasts uh, like what, five years ago <laughs> around the, the pre-pandemic period and I, um, yeah, I have a book called Tissue which is coming out on the 5th of July and it is a book of non-fiction, um, yeah, a, a non-fiction book about my experience uh acquiring an abortion but I sort of use that as a starting point to consider the topic more politically and philosophically. What led you to choosing that structure of like encapsulating your experience like it is as you say essays and there's a lot of research that has gone into it so what was the yeah decider behind kind of tying the personal in with the world around you? Yeah so I um when I had my first essay about abortion published in The Guardian, I remember there was a question there about whether or not I wanted my name attached to the article. And I felt like it was incredibly important um, given that it is an incredibly common procedure, um, but not often is it seen in a way that 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 kind of allows it to have the fullness of life. Um, so I really wanted to be able to in writing about it in book length, I wanted to be able to capture all of the the elements of my life that that bolstered up that that uh, choice that I made, and to also show the the nuances of choice um, more broadly, and how an experience such as uh, as terminating a pregnancy can force people, especially people, uh, especially women and and people who have experienced misogyny or any sort of um, gendered marginalization, force them to reckon with their their selfhood in in a lot of deeply personal but also deeply political ways. Mm. In the book, you touch on the power of naming something and what that can mean. So I think even in the early days, your choice to have yourself named is like such a powerful starter in that conversation and tool that you use. Definitely. Um, and so the book does have studies and articles and anecdotal lived experience from someone from other people, mm-hmm. but it is a very personal account and reflection on your own experience. So what led you to wanting to reflect on your own experience in such a public way? I've been doing that. <laughs> I've been doing that. I've been doing that for a while now. Um, I started writing about my own personal experience uh when I was 21, when I first started writing publicly. Um, And I always found it incredibly terrifying, but also incredibly important because it opened up these conversations uh, that we're having even today. And when I, um, years ago, when I, I, before I, I decided I wanted to pursue writing more seriously, I remember finding an article, um, 
by a well, who's now a friend of mine, a local writer named Giselle Nguyen, and um, it encapsulated. Uh, her experience acquiring a, a vaginismus diagnosis. And I was so um, held by her piece. And I think having all of the personal elements that it had um, allowed me to apply her way of critical thinking into my own life. So I, moving forward in, in, in my writing, I, I was always under the impression um, that the more I was able to give of myself, the more that the reader was able to find um nestled within that about about themselves even just for the sake of analogy even just to analogize an experience enough to be to you know consider how a writer is holding space for something that they too can hold space for that in their own lives Mm. I think even just gesturally having an entire book that does um center around determination uh signals to people that have experienced something such as that that it is a, a an experience worth um sitting in and honouring as well. Mm. I think you do that really well. Like speaking of analogies in particular, there's a a poeticness to a lot of your writing. And also I love in one of the essays, you are a tattoo artist as well. And looking at sort of the correlation between those experiences and, and what difference harm can be and that harm isn't this one definition of thing and who gets to decide what that is and you know there's blood involved in both and the redness it's just yeah everyone should read it it's it's a really (laughs) interesting way but you tying in your own experience and life to that really does just make everything more powerful thank you um and as a queer woman, can you talk about how that element shaped your experience? Yeah, I felt it was really important to add. Um, so, so for context in in the in the book, there is a chapter on the relationship between abortion and queerness more broadly, where I sort of interrogated my own relationship to queerness. And one thing I did notice when I started working in this space was that. Um, you know, not in, not in all spaces pertaining to reproductive access, but in, in a lot of them, it is incredibly cis-centric. So it sort of centres a lot around um, the presumption being heterosexual women who uh, undergo abortions. Um, statistically, it's there's more queer women that, that actually um, undergo abortions than there are heterosexual women. Mm-hmm. So even that I found quite compelling. Um, but I also wanted to bring the the argument of abortion out of the you know out of even the limits of 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 just that not all um women have vaginas I wanted it to be a little bit more nuanced and politically engaged than than just that um because in my in my research I found that wherever there was legislation or, or policy that was um potentially harming Abortion access it very much linked arms with anti-trans legislation. Mm. So I thought that the, the common thread there was really, really intriguing to me, and it was that there is this, um, you know, what an abortion represents is is a strain of of, of gender and a strain of the the gender scripts that we um, that patriarchal society relies upon, which is that you know when when um, a person who can fall pregnant does that they are thrilled because that's sort of their their whole uh, purpose in mm. a lot of ways. Um, Often they are, uh, quite often they're not. Um, so I wanted to show all of these other kind of, you know, um, opportunities to consider abortion through a much queerer lens. Mm. And, and, and similarly, transness represents a, a, an incredibly um, powerful gesture of, of 
rebelling against gender as well and the, and the strips of gender that exist in the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to remind my readers that abortion is very much a queer issue um, and even the, the, the outline of its uh, political history also does um, – can be found in the struggle of, of, of queer activists in the, in the 80s, you know, looking at um, the AIDS epidemic. So, mm. yeah, there were, there were a lot of links the more I, I was able to uncover that. Yeah, and it's a, a heavy reminder that the the politicization of abortion is very much about control and this patriarchal, archaic view of what a woman is or should be. And Completely. it is so inherent in the public conversations that we have about it that that is at the basis of especially what's happening in the US, for example, at the moment. Like, yeah. That Absolutely. is the centre of it. I remember reading a really um, – inc- uh, I remember like audibly gasping when I read this um, and it was in Open Democracy, which is a, a, a publication online, and it was about a man in um, Colombia, a trans man in Colombia who had um, had fallen pregnant and in his endeavours to acquire an abortion, he wasn't actually entitled to one because uh, legislation had said that – um, for a woman to, to, to fall pregnant and acquire an abortion. So I thought that that was an incredibly tragic um, and interesting example there of, of what we actually lose when we, we do um, isolate the issue to, to be just experienced by, by women. Mm, and it comes back to language and definition and how harmful, yeah. to, use that, to use that word, uh, those strict you know, categories can make it when it's just not what the reality is. Definitely. Um, Public conversations about abortion in the mainstream are often dichotomous. They're good or bad. Mm. As you put it, it's on a strict continuum of pain, evil and pleasure, liberating. Whereas in your book, you embed nuance and murkiness throughout. Do you see a possibility of this nuanced approach permeating public discourse? I'd really like that to be the case. And I, I... I think the more that I um, I try to speak publicly about about private things, it does encourage that um, conversation to to happen. Um, I think if we apply more nuance to these sort of conversations in general, it really does allow seeds of empathy to sort of grow within um, that space and within that conversation and. You know, there's a section where I, I write. I, I think it was in the in the chapter on queerness where I spoke about how you know the the fetus is this interesting. Um thing because it, it's it's so deeply vulnerable in air quotes and that it needs so so heavily to be protected but it's also so um powerful in that it, it, it it's godlike it sits above us and it sort of determines um our our future in a lot of ways and you know from some of the research that I read during that that period there were there was an essay that that mentioned and I I can't remember uh, I think it was by Ruth Ann Robson um and she mentioned that, you know, uh, for a lot of people, they can actually, especially cis men in this space, they can empathise more so with the, uh, with the fetus. It's coded more as person than, um, than someone of a marginalised gender or, or a woman is. Um, so I think even just attributing nuance to um, a vein of personhood that, that isn't often um, – really looked at so closely when it comes to abortion discourse is really, really important. And to also take us out of the um, 
the limits of of regret and joy and all of these very loaded terms you know I, th- I think what was interesting is that I felt um incredibly free and and miserable for a period there and and um that was important and if I'd been in another kind of echo chamber of, or been in a space or, or a country where abortion was um was spoken about in a very different way that pain that I was feeling that that had nothing to do with regret or, or my agency could have very easily morphed into something quite dangerous. So having these conversations is important. Mm, and I think that that t- last point touches on a very important note that in the world that you are currently living in, like you do have a lot of privileged access yeah. for, to abortion is a huge one, but also, you know, I'm sure so, like the, the social circle you're in and yeah. that you can have these conversations at all. Um, yeah, just wanting to acknowledge that that is a big part and many um, people in the world don't have that luxury. Absolutely. I think that's um, – I really wanted to make that very obvious through the writing of the book and through the readership of the book. You know, I, I you know, in the, in the introduction I say I – I think it's like I live, fucking work in a country that allows abortion <laughs> to take place, which is very, very important. Mm. And also, you know, I'm not, um, I don't have language access issues. I don't have um, physical access issues. I don't, um, you, there's so many other elements there that um, I'm, I'm not a First Nations woman, so I don't have a, a history, a, a complex history in that regard. Um, so, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's complex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, were you surprised pleasantly or otherwise by anything you learned about yourself or the world in the process of writing the book? That's a really good question. I like that question. Um, I I was surprised by how much of, you know, what, what other, not necessarily wounds, but what other, what other, what other elements of my life um, felt relevant when I discussed abortion. You know, one thing that was particularly pervasive throughout the book was was how I interrogated my own relationship to motherhood more broadly, looking at my relationship to being mothered, my relationship to my mother, and the relationship I had to um, what it would mean like what it would mean for me to potentially become a, a parent. Um, so yeah, I think it was interesting because I fell pregnant around the same, quite literally the same um, month and year that my my mother fell pregnant with me. So I I was forced to really reckon with that history as well. Mm. There are a lot more topics explored in this book and I wish we had all day to keep talking about them, but unfortunately that's all we have time for. Can you tell the listeners where they can find you and the book? Yeah, um, I can be found online if you just go on Twitter or Instagram and you search my name, which is Madison Griffiths. um, And the book is available uh, at all good bookstores. But (laughs) I I mean, I'm going to recommend shopping local for sure. Some local faves of mine are Brunswick Bound, Neighbourhood Books. I know that Brunswick Bound are actually, um, they are hosting the launch of Tissue, which will be on the 12th of July at the Brunswick Artist bar uh so that'll be exciting so come down and say hello amazing thank you Mm -hmm. uh we've been joined in the studio by madison griffiths author of new book tissue a considered and compelling look at abortion that invites the reader into the messy and complex realities embedded in this politicized active agency tissue is out next week
The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short for my dark eyes. Complex hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. I'm dreaming of the seven moons. Oh, I see what's new. LGBTQA plus people, that's come from a large history of people standing up and acting up for our rights and our communities. Talking queer Pacifica, talking about us. You know, there's very like violent act of like hatred and bigotry towards trans people, where they demonise the image of trans people, especially trans women. For working class queers, for queers of colour, for those who are poor and homeless, the struggle is continuing. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to play you a track next. This is by an artist from my hometown, Bombay, in India. Um, This is On My Own by Kayan.
Associate Professor Dr. Yakut Fatima is a researcher, pharmacist, sleep scientist and epidemiologist at the UQ Porsche Centre for Indigenous Health. Fatima is currently a member of the Indigenous Working Party of the Australasian Epidemiological Association and the Australasian Sleep Association that has recently joined the Sleep Health Foundation as the chair of the Working Party for Sleep Health of First Nations People. Here's my conversation with Fatima about her research and her the first sleep health program for First Nations adolescents in particular. So welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Fatima. It's great to have you on the show. Can we start by just talking about how you got into researching sleep in the first place? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. So research in sleep, that's a, a very interesting question. I never planned that, that I'll become a sleep researcher. Uh, it was uh, my PhD project, so by training I'm an epidemiologist and the data set I was working for my PhD. It has questions on sleep problem in children and obesity in later in life, so that's why my supervisor decided that it would be a good idea to cover the longitudinal link between sleep and obesity in children, and that was my first introduction to sleep research. Uh, and then of course, during this PhD, I published four or five papers and I got you know, quite interested in knowing more about sleep health. So after PhD, I did a, a course on, um, on becoming a sleep scientist and from there, the journey started. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, we, the general public, we know that sleep is inextricably linked to mental and physical good health. For everybody, but why is this particularly important for First Nations adolescents? Like, how does it impact their life outcomes? Well, like any other uh, teenager, First Nations teenagers, they also um, have this um, access to technology, devices, and um, and uh, like any other teenager, they like to stay up late night working playing on their devices, talking to their friends. So that's a common uh, risk factor, the screen time. But we, if you think about the broader social determinants of health, many young people in First Nations communities don't have access to clean, safe, comfortable sleeping spaces. And if you also think about uh, racism, discrimination, intergenerational trauma, so they are more vulnerable to experience poor, poor sleep because it all affects their mental health and sleep, and they are quite close linked. So while technology is the big factor, there are additional factors that increase their vulnerability to experience poor sleep. But other issue is that unlike their non-Indigenous counterparts, they don't have access to culturally responsive services that can address their sleep health issues uh, while, you know, in early stages. So there is no prevention program. There is no health promotion program. And when they have got established clinical problems, the services that we have got, they're not in the communities where they live. So it's like they need to travel to faraway communities. And again, there's no guarantee that the staff there would understand their cultural needs. So their risk of experiencing uh, poor sleep is significantly higher than their non-Indigenous counterparts. And it also affects their risk of developing mental health conditions, um, school performance, all those um, you know downstream impacts of poor sleep. So that's why we are focusing on this group. Yeah. So 
it sounds like it impacts their life, you know, starting from adolescence and all the way into the future. Um, and I realize there's limited studies into this, but have there been any studies into this? And if so, what have we learned so far? You're right. The evidence on sleep health of First Nations teenagers is very limited. We've got only a few studies and most of the evidence is coming from the Footprints in Time cohort study, a longitudinal study on First Nations uh, children. And we have got only three or four questions in that study. So it's not giving us the full picture, but it's still based on that evidence. And then we did a report for the Australian Sleep Association a couple of years back. We can say that compared to the uh, their non-Indigenous counterparts, First Nations teenagers are twice as likely to report poor sleep. But since we don't have any programs or any services, we don't know what a successful program would look like and whether or not, uh, you know, intervention around sleep health promotion or education can lead to significant improvement in sleep habits and sleep health. So it is uh, an emerging area uh, and it's unfortunate that we haven't prioritized sleep health research or sleep health intervention just not for indigenous communities and broadly general public health. The narrative is always focused on physical activity or healthy eating. It's only I think the last two or three years after the parliamentary inquiry, there is growing appetite and need, uh, you know, awareness for we should invest in sleep health, uh, especially for those communities uh, we are who are at high risk of poor sleep, uh, just not indigenous migrant groups, um, people who have got medical conditions. So, yeah, unfortunately, the evidence is not as strong and it's, it is still uh, suggests that high risk of poor sleep in Indigenous communities, especially in young people. Yeah. Um, so Australia's first sleep health program for First Nations teenagers has been co-designed in Queensland, in Mount Isa. Can you tell us a bit about that? How did it come about? And was there a lot of consultation with First Nations communities when making it? Oh, absolutely. So we started this program in late 2019. Um, we got a funding from the Medical Research Future Fund. So the funding was focused on mental health of First Nations teenagers. And we thought we'll talk about sleep and best in sleep health and see whether that can lead to improvement in mental health. For this program, since there was nothing to begin with, so we went to community members and asked them how should we approach this problem, what are their views, and so it's it. Uh, the program, the program philosophy is empowering the end user and seeking guidance from the community members, recognizing their leadership. So we formed a community elders steering group, a young people's advisory group, a service providers advisory group. So they are the key. Um, groups in our governance structure that uh, inform our research design, delivery, and dissemination. And then, guided by our advisory group members, we um, invited all community members, parents, carers, young people, elders, and service providers to join us for co-design workshop. Uh, we have consulted with over 200 people uh, and over 25 traditional owners, uh, digital group owners in, in Mount Isa and from other communities as well, because Mount Isa is a transient community. Many people uh, come from uh, the NT and other communities to, to come there. So our co-design approach, like I said, covered in you know consultations, there were 200 people. And based on their ideas, suggestions, uh, we realized that 
Although the program would focus on sleep, it also need to embed or integrate uh, traditional knowledge, cultural knowledge. So this program essentially is a combination of scientific evidence as well as uh, cultural knowledge. And then during those conversations was also identified that not uh, it's important to design a program, but also need we need to invest in local capacity building. We need to train local people who know the cultural context, who know the community context and challenges. And training them to become the program facilitator is going to be a more effective way of participant engagement and program uptake. So in parallel to community co-design for the program, we also work with community members to design the training framework, like what would they like the slave coach to do? What should be the tra critical training element that we need to embed in the framework? These two things uh, happen in parallel, the sleep coach training framework, the program co-design, and after the training framework was developed, we have trained two sleep coaches, two indigenous sleep coaches who are running the program. And they are the first ever indigenous sleep coaches in Australia, and I guess anywhere in the world as well. Uh, so it's a new, very, very new uh, area of research. And the third thing that we have done is, um, again, it was, discussing the community consultation. So we use very mainstream, uh, traditional academic focused definitions of program success and community members ask us to consider success as if we, as we define it. So program evaluation indicators, program evaluation tools were also co-designed with the end users. So right from the beginning of the program till the last stage where we are evaluating the program, it is all guided by the people who uh, are affected by poor sleep and who want this thing to be designed with them for them. That sounds really great. And I'm glad it's, um, you know, this community led because I feel like with a program like this, its success depends on something, the knowledge coming from the community. So that's incredible. Um, can you give us some examples of culturally specific practices that are being implemented in the program? So, um, the program that we have designed essentially it covers uh, pre-program yarning. So when participants join the program, uh, if they meet the inclusion criteria, which is age 12 to 18 years, uh, First Nations background, and any issues in sleep or mental health, uh, our sleep coach do that initial screening. After the initial screening, the participant and their parent or carer are invited to um, book a session with the sleep coach for pre-program yarning and this pre-program yarning we use the tools that we have co-designed with community members where we talk about you know their health their context their challenges their sleep health their needs and their expectations from the program what they would like to achieve from this program their goal and then we ask the participant to wear uh, actigraphy, uh, Fitbit like uh, watches for seven nights to get the data on their sleep habits. And we also ask them to complete a sleep diary that is again developed through a community consultation. After they complete that uh, part, we understand the individual need context challenges. And then they are invited to join the uh, program, which is a five session based program. In session one, we talk about uh, uh, what is sleep and why it matters, and we use a socio-ecological model for understanding what are the individual, family, and community-level factors that affect a young person's ability to get a good night's sleep. And there we have used the keywords that were identified in community consultation, like, you know, 
Is it uh, the lack of sleep, uh, safe sleeping spaces? It is uh, racism. Is it intergenerational trauma? So we have identified two things. One is uh, one group of thing. One group is sleep disruptors. So those are negative things that affect their sleep. But we also focus on positive things in people's life. We are uh, calling them sleep protectors. So it could be their connection with their country, connection with their group, uh, traditional group, connection with their community. So these are sleep protectors. So individual identify in their own life, what are the key sleep protectors and sleep disruptors? And they do this in a group activity. So people also know about other people's contacts, like what's happening. And so at the end of this pro this session, the sleep coach also asked the participant to design, um, come up with a group goal. And group goal is focused on normalizing sleep health in young people. So one of the group goals that uh, first group identified was not using technology after 10 o'clock in the night. And they, uh, in session two, we discussed the progress of the individual goal and group goal, but we also use Feltman, which is a tool for diabetes education in First Nations communities. So we have adapted that Feltman. And Feltman, uh, using Feltman, we talk about how sleep, of sleep loss affect different body part and functioning. To highlight that, we have identified 10 animals which have significance in local Aboriginal culture. For example, we have a kangaroo for memory. So we talk about we, the narrative is focused on how um, you would act like uh, a kangaroo if you uh, get a good night's sleep. Um, for physical appearance, we have butterfly. And, and for focus, we have um, alligator. So using those animals which have significance in the local region and uh, are identified as a totem of that re region, we are using Feldman for sleep education in session two. Session three, we build on this knowledge and further talk about sleep uh, hygiene, sleep, mm, healthy sleep practices. And then session four and five, we talk, we focus on strengthening connection with culture and cultural traditional knowledge. Session four, participants go for a walk on country with sleep coaches, where they learn about bush food, bush medicines, and traditional practices that use by elders to get a good night's sleep. In session five, they learn indigenous relaxation training that they can practice at home before going to bedtime to get the physical or mental relaxation. And then again, after program, they do the post-program yearning to reflect on their journey, what worked well, what did not work well, whether or not their goals were achieved, and developing a program for going forward. So in all those pre-program, post-program, yarning and five sessions, cultural connections play a big role. And some sessions are there also join us to facilitate the session delivery. That sounds incredible. Uh, you know, what's, what, what have some of the outcomes been so far for Young First Nations participants? So, so far we have recruited 48 people. Uh, we started the program delivery early this year. 13 people have graduated. Uh, we're still collecting data for assessing the program effectiveness. But for program uptake, we can say that uh, certainly we have received significant support from community members, participants, their parents. Uh, with programs like this, where you need to engage young people for a period of eight to 10 weeks, retention is a big problem. And this was uh, um, you know, a concern for us, whether we would be able to retain the cohort. And uh, I'm very pleased to tell you that we have received 100% retention rate. So people who were, who joined the program at the screening stage, they finished the pre-program yarning, five-session post-program yarning. And after the end of this post-program yarning, we um, organize a graduation ceremony where the participants are invited to bring their family or friends. So all these 10 uh, weeks of interaction, 
we haven't found any single person dropping out. We also ask the participant to uh, rate the performance at the end of each session around on the, the engagement, content, and delivery. And we have got a really high rating on all hospital program after each session. So acceptability is quite high. Engagement is high. Feasibility is, is proven. Now the effectiveness, we will know about that once we have got more data and then we can do meaningful analysis to see whether or not there are significant changes in pre versus post program outcomes. Amazing. And what's next for your research and for the program? So... Yep. Uh, so we started with one community, but last year we um, we have uh, formed a partnership with Beyond Blue and uh, Sleep Health Foundation, Queensland Children's Hospital, uh, to Indigenous Services. And using that partnership, we applied for a partnership grant from NHMRC. We got that. So now we are going to six other communities in rural, remote Queensland to take this program to other young people in surrounding communities and. We have received uh, um, invitation from other communities to bring this program to other young people in those um, rural remote communities in Queensland. And at some point, we'll go to Darwin because we have received invitation from some communities in Darwin as well. So program is going to be, uh, I guess, expanded in other communities. But of course, we need to do one step at a time. So, yeah, so we have got more people who have joined the sleep coach training after two of sleep coaches graduated. Since then, 15 other people have joined the sleep coach training. Um, now the in focus is on taking this. So currently we are focusing on teenagers, but community elders want us to focus on other age groups as well, uh, elderly um, and especially in early life. So we'll be considering other funding opportunities to uh, do research in those areas as well. Sounds great. Um, I'm really looking forward to see where the research goes. That's unfortunately all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us, Fatima. We would love to have you back down the line to talk about how the program's going as well. Absolutely. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you for having me. So that was uh, Associate Professor Dr. Yakut Fatima talking to us about her research into First Nations adolescent sleep and the first health program taking a culturally focused approach. We will link to the report that she has co-authored as well as an article in the conversation in our show notes later today. So that interview brings us to the end of our show today. Um, we just wanted to, before ending the show, give our listeners a update on Radiothon. We have managed to stationwide raise $190,000, which is incredible. We are aiming for 275. So please remember that if you haven't got around to donating to 3CR Radiothon, it is not too late. Any donation over $2 is tax deductible. So make a donation before Friday, which is the end of financial year. You can call us on 94198377 or text 0488809855 or donate online at 3cr.org.au slash donate. NADOC Week is coming up next week, 2nd of July to 9th of July. The theme this year is for our elders and NADOC Week is an opportunity to celebrate the stories and culture of Indigenous people. There are some community events happening in Nam. Here are a couple to look out for. There's the Vic Nadoc flag raising ceremony at Federation Square Monday, 3rd of July from 8.30am. 
Aboriginal Housing Victoria's NAIDOC Family Day is at Collingwood Children's Farm on Wednesday the 5th of July, 10.30 till 3. The much-loved community event will feature traditional crafts, live music, dance and more. And then on Friday, there's the Vic NAIDOC March. So you can meet at Victorian Aboriginal Health Service in Fitzroy from 10am for the pre-March festival. And then the March leaves from the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service uh, at 12pm. You can head to vicnaidoc.com.au to see a full list of community events happening during NAIDOC week. And as always, 3CR will be doing Beyond the Bars during NAIDOC week. It's live radio from Victorian prisons since 2002. Tune in throughout the week from 11am Monday to Friday. You can head to 3cr.org.au slash bars for more information on that. Just a quick rundown of our show this morning. We started off listening to a clip from Climate Action Show about where um, uh, Blockade Australia activist uh, Neve O'Connor speaks with Vivian Langford about the suspension of a Footscray road that stopped traffic last week. We then listened to Fung's interview with Daisy, who is a family violence lawyer based in Nam, about navigating the medical birthing system here in Nam. We were then joined by Madison Griffiths, writer, artist and producer based in Melbourne, about her new book, uh, Looking at Abortion in a Meditative and Personal Way. And we ended with Associate Professor Dr. Yakut Fatima about her research into First Nations sleep for as a, uh, sleep for First Nations adolescents and the first ever clinic exploring this through a cultural lens. That's our show for this morning. Stay tuned to the breakfast shows for the rest of the week. And as always, Accent of Women is coming up next. <laughs> Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Three CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.